This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let us begin with the prayer that we would have begun our Good Friday service with. God most holy, look with mercy on this your family for whom our Lord Jesus Christ was willing to be betrayed, be given over into the hands of the wicked, and suffer death upon the cross. Keep us always faithful to him, our only Savior, who now lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Our text for our sermon is Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 through 66. On the next day, which was the day after the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered into the presence of Pilate and said, Sir, we remembered what that deceiver said while he was still alive. After three days I will rise again. So give a command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, otherwise his disciples might steal his body and tell the people, He's risen from the dead! And this last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and posting a guard. This is the gospel history of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm standing at an empty pulpit right now looking at our congregation, and it's so weird. Normally on Monday, Thursday, the last thing we do is we strip the altar, we remove the candle stands and everything, so that all that's left is a barren pulpit, lectern, altar, and the cross that's above the altar that remains lit. Our congregation exits in silence. We celebrate that the Lord was stripped of all of his earthly possessions so that he could redeem us, so that we do not get too attached to this earth. Normally on Good Friday, we gather together silently. No pre-service music is played. We have gathered for a funeral. And the only thing, besides the barren pulpit, lectern, altar, and that cross, is a black altar cloth draped across the altar. We gather on Good Friday for a funeral. It is the saddest funeral in human history. And because we know what happens Easter morning, it is the happiest funeral in human history. For Christ's death is for our sins and his resurrection is for our resurrection. There's an irony that we cannot gather together due to social distancing because of a virus. And yet that little virus is because God subjected the world to decay And it reminds us we cannot gather this year for Good Friday or Easter. And yet there's an irony. Our Lord is still victorious. And so today we will cover the last irony in the Passion history. We're going to cover one more irony for Easter Sunday. But today we cover the last irony in our Passion history for this year. And that's, he said, I will rise again. And we see it's irony in who is the real deceiver. And it's irony that their security became God's proof. So, our text says, on the next day, that would be Saturday, Jesus dies on Good Friday, which was the day after the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered into the presence of Pilate and said, Sir, we remembered what that deceiver said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise again. So give a command that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples might steal his body and tell the people, He is risen from the dead, and this last deception will be worse than the first. 
Isn't it the irony that they call Jesus the deceiver? They have to lie in their kangaroo court with witnesses in order to find a charge to bring before Pilate in order that they can legally get away with murder. Isn't it the irony that the witnesses don't agree? And ultimately, the reasons why they bring him before Pilate, the charges, and Jesus is guilty of these charges, is because Jesus says that he is the Son of God. But those aren't the reasons why he's crucified. Oh no, the reasons they bring to Pilate is that he says he's the King of the Jews, and Jesus is. He's the King of all creation. So already, isn't it ironic that they call Jesus the deceiver when it's them who have deceived all along? And there's an irony in the group. We're told chief priests and Pharisees. How did the Pharisee think he was saved? The Pharisee believed in the resurrection of the dead, but the Pharisee believed that he saved himself. He saved himself by keeping the law. And in order to make sure that they didn't violate the Ten Commandments, they had over 600 laws they had added as a hedge around the Ten Commandments. And yet... They lied to themselves because as Jesus made clear on the Sermon of the Mount, but even as God had pointed out to the Jewish people before Christ took on human flesh, our thoughts condemn us. The Pharisee only deceived himself if he thought that he was righteous and earned his salvation. So he was only deceiving himself. And every one of us know Christians who think that they are saved by acting holy themselves. Oh, if you put the thumbscrews on, they'll say, yeah, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. But they act as though they're saved by their own holiness. As if God just jump-started them and got them working on the right path. And you know, the only people they're fooling is themselves. Even the unbelievers see that they are hypocrites. And a hypocrite only deceives himself. And what about those high priests? Those high priests were deceiving themselves as well because the high priests got to function all the time in the temple. Most of your other priests worked in shifts. They rotated on and off over a period of a couple of weeks and then they were done for a while. But the high priests, every day they got to walk into the temple and it was Herod's temple that they served. But there was a courtyard, shall we say, and that courtyard had its divisions. But you reached a certain point of that courtyard and you could go no further unless you were a priest. And it reminded everybody, God is holy. And with your sin, you cannot approach the Holy Lord unless you are cleansed. Now those priests could go further because of their office. But even then, every day they had to cleanse themselves. So the priests every day got to walk past that courtyard, past that barrier, no further. And they got to go and they saw the altar. The altar that reminded everybody the wages of sin is death. And since you are guilty, if you are going to be before a holy Lord, you have to have someone who is innocent who is sin-free, give their life in your place. And that all pointed to Jesus Christ. They thought they had just got away with murdering him, but they would have detested using the word. We know Jesus gave his life. After you pass the altar, there was a huge wash basin. You see, the priests themselves had to wash their hands and feet, for they too were unclean. And they had to make sacrifices to cleanse themselves that they could take part in presenting the people's sacrifices to the Lord. Now, I don't want to get into the complete layout of the temple. However, once they walked into the temple, the center part itself, 
there was a lampstand. It had seven branches showing God's perfection that was the only light given to the rest of the temple. And after having been cleansed, you could go in there, but only for specific duties. And behind that, there was the curtain. As you came in through the front door, you'd see this huge, thick curtain. By the way, the curtain had just been torn in two at Christ's death. And the only person who could go past that curtain was the high priest. After he himself had done the right sacrifices to cleanse himself, he went in there once a year to sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of Israel. Their very office as high priests should have screamed out to them, you cannot approach the holy God unless he takes on human flesh and his blood washes you clean of your sin. They were only deceiving themselves. The sad thing is we do the same thing today, don't we? Don't we deceive ourselves and think that we can approach a holy God? Don't we think that God owes it to us, that somehow we're special than other human beings? Or we reverse the blame and say, how dare God expect me to be holy so that I can approach Him? And one of the greatest deceptions is these men come along and try to cover up their what appears to be a murder. We know Jesus gave His own life. And then they try to cover up the resurrection. Is They're not the only ones to be deceptive in history. There was a cult. It already existed before Christ took on human flesh and it would engulf other religions. That was known as Gnosticism. Whenever around Easter time, the Discovery Channel or the National Geographic Channel tell you they've discovered a document that's going to change the Bible, it's usually the writings of that cult of Gnosticism. And everybody knows this. But Gnosticism had come along and claimed that Jesus had only fainted on the cross. Another branch of Gnosticism claimed that when Simon of Cyrene was forced to carry the cross as Jesus stumbled, recall Jesus had been whipped, the skin had literally been flayed off his back, that Jesus then he had the powers to be able to swap places with Simon of Cyrene. So he made Simon look like him and it was actually Simon of Cyrene they crucified. Horrible things because then you and I are still stuck in our sin. And it's really sad today that many Christians do not believe in the miracles of the Bible. You wonder why they even call themselves Christians then. And usually it's because they're being deceived by a false teacher who themselves believe those false things. And they too want to believe that Jesus only fainted at the cross. You get whipped with the whips that they use that had the shards of shrapnel in them to rip off skin. You get whipped by it. You get slapped in the face and punched by the high priest's guard that arrested him. You let the Roman soldiers have their fun with you and punch you and slap you as well. And see how well you're doing three days after that beating and everything. But then you go ahead and you let them drive nails through your feet. Archaeological evidence show they tended to drive it through the heel as the feet were turned sideways. And then it seems archaeological evidence has shown that what the Greek calls the cuff of the hand would be about the wrist that they drive the nails. You come off of that and see if Sunday, you're nailed to the cross on Friday, see if Sunday you can get up and walk around and be just fine. The irony here is who is the real deceiver because Jesus was up front the whole entire time. Jesus had said time and time again, I'm going to die for your sins and rise again. Early on in Jesus' public ministry, the first time he cleansed the temples, by whose authority do you do this? Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. Then the last week he's alive when he cleanses the temple, by whose authority do you do this? Destroy this temple and in three days I will rise again. 
He was talking about himself because the temple itself only pointed to him. It was a foreshadow of God with us, the Savior. Jesus was up front the whole entire time, made it clear he'd come to die for our sins. No deception from Jesus' mouth. And yet these people deceive. The irony here is, as they quote him, he said, I will rise again. And we know he will. That's what we're going to celebrate on Sunday. But there's an irony in who is the real deceiver. God who doesn't deceive anybody about his coming for our sins. And those who lie to themselves and even lie trying to cover it up. And that's the reason why they go to Pilate and ask for a guard. They are trying to cover this up. And we're told in verse 65, Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. And verse 66 says, So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and posting a guard. All of this is trying to make sure that nobody can claim that Jesus rose again. And that's the irony. Stop and think about this. They would drip wax over that tomb and then they would stamp that. If you broke that, you were violating the law and you answered to Pilate who had the power to have you crucified. And then they posted guards. And if the guards fell asleep on duty, they could be flogged. If what they were supposed to be guarding got stolen, they themselves could be put to death. They could suffer the death penalty for failing in their job post. In other words, the Pharisees and the chief priests who came before Pilate went out of their way to make sure nobody could take Jesus' body. And God, as the Psalms say, laughed after man makes his plans and the Lord laughs. Because what they ended up doing was giving you strong proof that Jesus rose. Jesus apparates, shall we say, out of the tomb. And then he sends an angel to break the tomb open, break the seal, and the guards in fear and trembling pass out. God gave you significant proof that he rose from the grave. There was no people coming to steal his bodies. What the chief priests and the Pharisees were trying to accomplish instead is tremendous comfort for you because they made it so impossible for somebody to come out of that tomb. If Jesus came out of that tomb, those guards were supposed to kill him right then and there. But again, just as he raised Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, the young man at Nain, these people should have known they couldn't kill the Lord, that he wouldn't stay dead. Strong proof. And that's comfort. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus' death is your death. Jesus' resurrection is your resurrection. It's your receipt that your sins are paid for in full. Now, archaeologists have found a document in Rome written by Pontius Pilate stating that he had crucified a man for being the king of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth. You are a fool if you deny that there really historically was a man named Jesus who was crucified. This Jesus truly existed. There is solid evidence. Now, it's by faith that the Holy Spirit gives us that we find our confidence that Jesus is true God and true man who died for our sins. But this is not somebody who 100, 200 years later, writing and making up this story about somebody who never even existed in creating a cult. Jesus truly existed. And he left strong evidence that he beat that tomb for you. Now, he had that recorded in Scripture. And there were eyewitnesses to people who saw his resurrection. 
And so this is tremendous comfort for you and I. There's an irony. They try to cover up the resurrection. And in their covering it up, they gave some of the strongest proofs for you and I that, yes, we weren't there 2,000 years ago, but Jesus rose from that tomb. And so we gather together on the Internet instead of in church to celebrate the funeral of our Lord. And we look at that irony. We remember it's sad. Our Lord dies for our sins and that sends us. But we always have that glimmer of hope because we know we're going to gather together, in this case on the Internet, to hear his words fulfilled. He said, I will rise again. Irony in who is the real deceiver. It was not Jesus. He remained truthful. It was those people who deceived themselves and deceived each other to crucify him and then were deceiving themselves thinking they could cover up his death and resurrection. And the irony there is that their security, trying to secure that tomb, becomes God's proof to you. Jesus came out of that tomb and your sins are paid in full. Amen. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let us conclude this by saying the prayer of the church for Good Friday. Heavenly Father, you are a just God who accepts nothing less than perfection. All too often we fail to realize how much our sins offend you. We forget that the wages of sin truly is death. We forget that there actually is a hell. Lead us to recognize the seriousness of our sinfulness. Lead us also to admit our inability to make things right with you. Teach us to look to you as the only one who can make us just and right. Today we are reminded not only of your justice, but also of your love. You did not spare your own son, but gave him as a ransom for each one of us. Comfort us with the knowledge of this great love. Give us the peace that the forgiveness of sins brings. When we feel our guilt, point us to the cross where our guilt was washed away in Jesus' blood. Lord Jesus, we thank you for paying the debt that we could not pay. We thank you for coming to earth so that we could be with you forever in heaven. For being our perfect substitute, we thank you, Lord Jesus. Son of God, you offered up your body as an unblemished sacrifice for sin and commended your spirit into the hands of your Father. Teach us to cast the cares of this brief life on our Heavenly Father and commit our bodies and souls to his love. Give us the courage to face death, knowing that it is the gate to our home in heaven. Hear us, Lord, as we offer our personal thanks for the forgiveness that you have given us and for the home that you have won for us. Lord, in your death, we know you've already conquered the coronavirus. For the worst it can possibly do is take our life. But when we have faith in you, you have given us eternal life. Help us to view this time of social distancing as a small, minor skirmish. Let us know that this is just a battle. For you have won the big victory of sin, death, and the devil. And the coronavirus is just because you have subjected this world to decay. But all who believe in you will be given a new heavens and a new earth that will be free of such viruses, that will be free of sin, that will be free of death. The cross was once an instrument of death. It is now a sign of life. 
Dear Savior, we humbly kneel at the cross in awe of your power and of your love. Amen.